So today is the last Dhamma talk, or the last formal Dhamma talk during this second Metta Meditation Retreat. Well, tomorrow, during the closing ceremony, there will be a few talks, shorter talks, by various people. So I want to take this opportunity to highlight yet another aspect of metta as it relates to our cultivation of loving-kindness. It's about the understanding that on a very basic level, we as human beings are not different from each other. So to recognize our shared humanity. This is a great help and support when cultivating loving-kindness for all beings. I mentioned it very briefly in my talk three days ago. And then in the second part of this talk, I will point out just a few ways of how we can integrate this practice of kindness, of being friendly, into our day-to-day life. Many religious teachers say that we as human beings are all like sisters and brothers, or that we should regard each other as brothers and sisters. So they encourage us to overcome our narrow-mindedness and to be kind and friendly to all human beings and, moreover, to all living beings. So in regard to human beings, despite the differences that are there, but there is a common ground. Like we are human beings with the same hopes and fears. We are are human beings with the same wish for a good and happy life. Or we are human beings with the same wish for being free from pain or misery, any kind of suffering. So on this very basic level, and I call this the heart level, we as human beings are not different from each other. In the same way as we want our siblings to be happy and well, we should consider all other human beings as our siblings and also wish them to be happy and well. And three days ago in the talk, I mentioned how the Burmese language promotes this understanding of seeing everybody else as part of one's family. I said that even when addressing a person we don't know, even when addressing a complete stranger, we use terms of auntie or uncle, elder brother, younger sister, son or daughter, or grandmother, grandfather. So it boils down that we should really acknowledge 
that we are all human beings with the same basic wishes, hopes, and fears. So this is what we all share. This is what we have in common. So in this way, we can see and understand our shared humanity. The 17th Karmapa puts it the following way. The Karmapa is one of the head of the, one of the main Tibetan lineages, Buddhist lineages. So he says, when our love for another person is not contingent on anything they give or do, they can never give us a reason to stop loving them. When we trust in another person's fundamental goodness and their worth as a human being, then that trust will be deeply rooted enough to weather any storm. So to see our shared humanity. The Metta Sutta, the Discourse on Loving-Kindness, is one of the most well-known suttas or discourses. And here in Burma, it is recited at basically all important or big ceremonies. And not only that, in most of the monasteries, nunneries, and even in homes of lay people, the Metta Sutta is often recited on a daily basis. So I'm quite sure that right now in this moment, the Metta Sutta is recited somewhere here in Burma and somewhere around the world. So in the Metta Sutta, the Buddha laid the foundation for the actual development of Metta. And as we know, basically the practice of metta meditation aims at the cultivation of an attitude of kindness, friendliness, benevolence for all living beings. And what this entails, like all living beings, this is described in the Metta Sutta with these words. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, the medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. So this last line, may all beings be at ease, or sometimes it's translated, may all beings be happy. You know, this is like the punchline. This is the gist of the teaching. Simply to wish every being to be happy and well. 
So then what is needed to have this loving, kind, <clears throat> and benevolent attitude towards beings, all beings? So in, instead of seeing the differences, we should see what we have in common in regard to human beings to see our shared humanity and in regard to all living beings to see and understand that all forms of life are precious and that all forms of life deserve our kindness, our friendliness, our harmlessness. So to make this clear, the Buddha used the illustration of a mother's love for her child. And he encouraged us to see all beings as our own child. So to extend our love, our metta-love, to all beings like we extend it to our child. And you know this passage from the Sutta. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So the Buddha said very clearly that we need to broaden this felt sense of metta for a child to other beings, to other human beings, to other living beings. So this benevolent, loving attitude must go beyond the person we love most dearly. We must extend this attitude of metta to other human beings and to every living being that exists somewhere. And the Buddha made it also very clear that the heart and the mind is capable of cultivating this unconditional love for every living being. He said that all of us have the ability to overcome the limitations of a closed heart. The limitations of a closed heart that is filled with anger, prejudice, attachment, lust, envy, and so on. So then, when the heart and mind is able of such a noble and benevolent state, why do we limit it? Why do we set limits by personal likes and dislikes, or limits by race, or nationality, or sexual orientation, or the color of the skin. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist. He lived in the last century and during the Second World War, he 
was in four different uh, concentration camps in Germany. So he had no out of freedom. He was imprisoned. He was lucky that he survived. And he had said, <clears throat> the real freedom is to choose our attitude. So which attitude do we choose? Or which attitude do we nourish? You know, Ayaviranyani in one of her talks mentioned that story of the wolf feeding the wolf. You know, which part of the wolf do you nourish? Basically, you know, the negativity or the positive aspects. We know that the habit or the conditioning of dwelling in negative and angry thoughts can be very strong. But once we recognize the harm and the damage that such negative thoughts do to ourselves and to others, you know, once we recognize how much they create suffering for us, then we should really make an effort to pull out of these negative thoughts, make an effort to subdue, to weaken, or to overcome these thoughts. So we have this choice or the freedom to direct the mind to see what we have in common with others instead of directing the mind to dwell on the differences, on the negativity. So we should look at the good side of a person and not at the bad side. And again, we should simply contemplate that other persons are other living beings, that they have the same basic desires, hopes, wishes, namely to be happy and at ease, to avoid pain and suffering. So the following examples example shows this shift in attitude. Instead of looking at the bad side of a group of young men, the parents looked at what they had in common with them. The daughter of this American couple was brutally murdered by a gang of young men in South Africa. The young men were caught, arrested, and put into prison. However, the parents of the daughter who had been murdered, they pleaded for amnesty for this young man. And not only that, the parents, they even set up a charitable organization to help the people in that township were mostly poor and black people were living. And they even employed the young man 
who had murdered their daughter, they employed them uh, in their charitable organization. They gave them uh, meaningful work there. Such stories, they are always very touching and also inspiring because they show that such a radical shift in one's attitude is actually possible. And you know, it's not, it's not only possible for a Buddha or for very highly realized beings, but such stories show such a shift in attitude is possible for anybody. Even so-called ordinary human beings are capable of such a profound trans transformation of the heart and the mind. So please, never forget that you are now in the process of training your heart and your mind to strengthen and cultivate ever deeper, more profound kindness, benevolence, and that you may be the next person to undergo such a profound shift if you have not already undergone a profound shift. Now, as I continue my talk, for the sake of simplicity, I will limit the scope to human beings, because otherwise it will become kind of complicated when I always have to mention, you know, human beings and other living beings. In South Africa, they have the notion of Ubuntu, Ubuntu means that we are human beings in dependence on each other. So this shares to our, no, this points to our shared humanity, points to our shared humanness, because we share so much with each other. As I said, of course, there are differences. But if we can recognize that we share our humanity, that we share our being human, then with that we can already feel much closer to each other. So here follows a story from South Africa that illustrates this sense of Ubuntu and the fact that we can only be happy if others are happy too. And an anthropologist offered a new game to the children of one of the tribes living in South Africa. So for that, he put a basket filled with fruits near a tree, and then he told the children that the one who was first to grasp the bucket, basket with the fruit, then could have it. 
So he put them up in a line, maybe 50 meters away from the tree, and then he gave the signal so that they could start running. Once he had given the signal to start, the children took each other by the hands and they ran together. Together, they reached the basket, sat around the basket, eating and sharing the fruits. When the anthropologists asked the kids why they had done what they did, when he asked why nobody ran very fast to grasp the basket first, they said, how can one of us be happy when all the others are not happy? So these children, probably all the people from that tribe, they clearly recognize that their happiness is dependent on the happiness of others. But many human beings have the tendency to put other people into different boxes, different categories. People they like, people they don't like, people they feel close to, people they call strangers or enemies, beloved people, hated people, and so on. And so with these boxes or these categories, they set up boundaries, and these boundaries, they alienate us from others. They create a wall in between, or like a huge gap. And so with the practice of cultivating loving kindness, we try to tear down the walls, to overcome these big gaps or the boundaries. And so when cultivating loving kindness, it's helpful to repeatedly reflect on the shared humanity, to reflect that we as human beings share the same hopes and fears. Sometimes it can take quite a long time to clearly see that others are not different from, uh, from us. It can take quite some time to really very deeply understand that they actually share the same hopes, the same fears. It can take, to, it can take time to really see that they are a human being, just my, like myself. Nelson Mandela, he had spent 27 years in prison. And some had said that this was a total, total waste of time. However, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu said that these 27 years in prison were not wasted time. Desmond Tutu 
had said, Many may be surprised when I say that these 27 years were necessary. They were necessary to remove the slag. Through the suffering in prison, he, Nelson Mandela, became more generous and he was able to listen to the other side. He discovered that those he considered to be his enemies were human beings like himself, with the same fears, with the same expectations. The Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama are very open-minded religious leaders. And the two of them, they are also very good and close friends. And on the occasion of the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday, that was in 2015, the two men spent one week together reflecting on the topic of joy. So their thoughts and reflections on the topic of joy, they were collected and made into a book. And the book is called The Book of Joy. It's a very touching and inspiring book because the person who wrote the book and who was present at, um, during this week, he also describes how these two men interacted with each other. So, for example, when the Dalai Lama talked about the destruction of most of the monasteries in Tibet with the Chinese invasion, then the Archbishop Desmond Tutu, he took the Dalai Lama's hand and held it softly. At other times, the two men, they teased each other and they could have a good laugh with each other. Like a red thread running through this week, the two men stressed times and again that people should overcome their limiting categories and develop love and compassion for all human beings, for all beings alike. Some days ago, one meditator related in an interview that she thought of sharing her own little thermos with another yogi who was sick. But then the first reaction in her mind was, no, 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 I need it. But then immediately after that, another thought arose, which was, well, what's the difference between me and this other yogi? So this was the soft meta-mind that reminded her that there is actually no difference. 
or Pema Chodron said it like this. Pema Chodron, a Western nun in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and she had set up Gampo Abbey, a monastery in Nova Scotia. She uses the word compassion, but as we know, compassion as a manifestation of metta in the face of suffering. So she says, compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. Yes, to acknowledge our shared humanity is the bedrock and the starting point of the metta meditation practice. The Buddha, however, he went a step further and he said that we need to develop this loving, benevolent attitude not only to humans, but to all living beings, to all living beings without exception. And so we could call it to acknowledge our shared experience as living beings. <clears throat> Many astronauts have talked about the moment when they saw the Earth from out in space. So seeing the Earth as this small blue ball in infinite space, seeing it without man-drawn boundaries. And then they said, in that moment, they recognized the unity of all life in this boundless space. Nowadays, even scientists have come to realize that our well-being, like our well-being as human beings, is dependent on the well-being of others. For example, if the bees are dying, then we will no longer get mangoes or apples, unless the mango flowers or apple flowers are hand-pollinated, as they do in some parts of China, for example. So we need happy and healthy bees for our well-being. But it's the self-centered and deluded heart and mind that sets up boundaries to secure our happiness. But because the mind is deluded, it does not see that these very boundaries are actually the cause for not being really happy. The Buddha pointed out, he pointed out the fact that true happiness comes from an open heart that cherishes all living beings equally. And that's why he advised us, he encouraged us time and again 
to cultivate the heart and the mind that radiates goodness, benevolence to all living beings without exceptions. So when we engage in the cultivation of metta, of loving-kindness, we know it's the cultivation of this loving and kind attitude in our heart and mind. And to do that, we take other persons or other living beings as the object for our metta-meditations. So, you know, the objects, the persons, the beings, they may change, but the cultivation of kindness that should be maintained all the time. And many of you have related in the interviews that, you know, now after almost two weeks or after almost four weeks of intensive meta-meditation practice, sometimes very unexpectedly or surprisingly, a little incident has happened or a thought has come up where you have noticed a shift in your attitude, like a kind and loving thought where before it was usually a thought or a reaction of negativity. And so this um, points to the fact, you know, that there is this transformation happening. You know, something um, is being transformed deep within the heart and the mind. And many, many years ago, I had such a pleasant uh, surprise or an experience where I realized that the shift in attitude had happened. It was more than 25 years ago when I was traveling in Tibet. And, well, to give you the background, I grew up in a flat. We never had pets, so I had no really close relationship with animals, neither dogs or cats or whatever other animals. Um, Just for a period of three years, I had a hamster. (laughs) You know, it was doing his thing in the the wheel. But so then, when traveling in Tibet, I met um, some other foreigners um, because that was in 1993. At that time, there were not many foreigners in Tibet. And so in Lhasa, I met a few others. And one of them was an English man, also a filmer, and he wanted to go to this very special place which is called, if I remember correctly, Lamo Lazo. It's a place east of Lhasa, somewhere in the mountains, where apparently every Dalai Lama 
goes once during his lifetime to kind of get a vision for the future of Tibet. It's called the seat of the Dalai Lama. It's high up on a ridge on 5,600 meters. And on the other side, a steep drop, and there is a lake down there. And they say that the Dalai Lama meditating up there, then kind of a vision will appear in the lake. So this English man and filmer, he had the idea of going there to do some filming. And so myself and a few other people joined him. We hired a jeep uh, and drove there. As I said, it was very remote, and the last part, going up that valley, there was no more, well, not a road, not even a dirt track. We basically had to drive up a dried river bed. So finally we got to the end. There were a couple of houses, a couple of families, and they were rebuilding a small monastery that had been destroyed by the Chinese. So we could spend the night there in the house of that family, one of the families, and then the next morning we started walking further up the valley and up to that ridge. It was in spring, so then higher up we came into the snow, and together with the altitude, it was hard going. But then finally, uh, in the afternoon, we made it up there on the ridge and could see down on the other side. But because there was still that much snow, the lake was frozen, <laughs> covered with snow. And the Englishman, wanting to film up there, he said so he also wanted to spend the night up there so that he could film sunset and sunrise. And I said, okay, I also want to spend the night up there. So we carried a tent, sleeping bag. And, but when he saw that the lake was frozen, covered with snow, the weather, you know, it was getting cloudy in the afternoon, he said, well, what's the point of filming? <laughs> um, and what's the point of staying the night up here? So he said, and all the others, uh, they would go back down. And I thought, well, having carried up the tent and the sleeping bag and some dried fruit, I'm going to spend the night up here, all by myself. So pitched up the tent, the others went down, and then I went into the tent in the evening, it started to snow a little bit, I had a light sleep up on that altitude. And then the next morning, when it was getting day, I was getting up, getting out of the tent. And to my big surprise, I saw that one of the dogs who had just followed us up to the ridge the previous day, that that dog had actually stayed up there with me, slept outside of my tent. And I was so touched that this dog would do that. 
And as I said, I had taken some dried fruit and nuts and also made a bowl of zampa, the roasted barley flour that I had mixed with butter tea. It was a solid ball, like a dough. And so then, you know, taking out the food to eat, there was no question that I would not share my food with this dog. It was so clear. There is another living being, you know, in the same way as I am hungry and want to eat, this dog is hungry and wants to eat. And so, you know, with that reaction in that situation, I noticed, ah, so this practice of loving kindness is actually doing something, you know, changing something very radically in one's heart and mind, like an attitude to other beings. And so as I said, many of you have had such experiences or moments when you know, there was this moment of surprise or amazement, realizing, wow, I really feel goodness towards my difficult boss. Or how amazing that all my grudges against my former schoolmates are gone. So these moments, these experiences, they are <clears throat> they are so inspiring and they give us the perseverance and the courage to continue with the practice. So these experiences, they let us catch, catch a glimpse of this noble and yet so simple quality of the heart and mind. So this is the core message of the Metta Sutta. It points directly to the most sublime, most powerful aspects of our human nature, namely the ability to be kind, to be loving towards all living beings. Ayakema was a German nun and meditation teacher, and she had said, to laugh, to laugh that which is laughable is possible for anyone. That's easy. That is what all the romances, the movies, and the novels are about. To laugh that which is laughable is not the spiritual path, but a worldly endeavor. The purpose of loving-kindness is the purification of the heart. So when Ayakema speaks of the purification of the heart, I understand it as the purification of all its limiting boundaries. As a spiritual path, the practice of loving-kindness leaves the worldly level and it becomes 
a sublime state of the heart and the mind, or it becomes a divine abiding, one of the Brahma-viharas. And so the cool thing about the Brahma-viharas is the fact that we can experience these sublime abidings right here and now. We can experience them right here on this earth as a human being. There is no need to first be reborn as a Brahma in the Brahma realm. So during this metta meditation retreat, all of you have experienced this sublime state of pure metta to some degree or another, sometimes a bit stronger, sometimes a bit less strong, sometimes for longer periods of time, sometimes for just a few moments. And so the good news is that you also can dwell in this beneficial state of the heart and mind during your day-to-day life. The stronger metta is embedded in the heart and the mind, the more likely is it that the heart and mind dwells in metta. The more likely it is that then all actions of body, speech, and mind are based on metta, or that these actions are suffused with the fragrance of metta. A German meditator who had been practicing both vipassana and metta meditation for many, many years, she once told me, The metta meditation has become a close friend whenever I am going somewhere, like walking to the post office or to the shop or walking to a friend. Metta is always present when I'm walking somewhere by myself. And metta is never offended, even if I forget her for a moment. However, each time I call her, Meta, she comes. I never thought that one day I would be able to do this. But with practice, she got to that point. So if the Meta attitude is not yet so strongly embedded in the heart, in the mind, if the metta has not yet become like our second nature, then there are plenty of opportunities throughout the day, in day-to-day life, to cultivate loving-kindness, you know, to train the mind, the heart, to dwell in metta, or to respond based on metta. You know, just to mention a few uh, examples, like in the morning when you get dressed, instead of just being lost in thoughts or worries or planning or remembering something, when you get dressed, you know, you could cultivate loving kindness for yourself. 
May I be happy and well. May I live at ease and in peace. And so, you know, for maybe two minutes or three minutes that it takes to fully get dressed, you are practicing meditation. You are cultivating metta. Or else, you know, when you ride a bus or take a train or uh, a tram or uh, a plane, during these 10 minutes or half an hour or 12 hours in a plane, you can radiate metta, be it for yourself, or you simply could do it to the person sitting next to you. May you be well and happy. May you have an easeful day. May your boss be kind to you. Or radiating metta to everybody in the bus or in the train. May all these people in this train be happy and well. Or radiating metta to the bus driver or the pilot. Or, you know, when you are walking up the stairs to your office or walking up the stairs to get to your flat or in your home, you know, whenever you are walking up or down stairs, that could be a moment, a few moments, to cultivate loving-kindness. If you're walking up the stairs to go to your office, then cultivating metta for all your co-workers. May they be at ease and in peace. May they be free from all kinds of worry and suffering. Or whoever you are going to meet or to see. Or just one more example. When cooking a meal um, for your family. So when cooking, cultivating metta uh, for your family. May all of my family live happily and peacefully. Or cultivating metta for yourself. Or it could also be to cultivate metta to all the people, to all the beings who have in one way or other contributed to the ingredients of your meal to be there. All those who have planted and harvested um, the veggies and the truck drivers and the, the wife of the farmer who ta- uh, cooks the meal for the farmer working in the field and the worms in the earth and the insects. So all those who have contributed for this food to be here and to be eaten. May they be happy and well. May they have um, enough food. So in this way, you know, without even sitting on the cushion doing formal metta meditation practice, there are so many moments, so many opportunities throughout the day of practicing. You know, don't underestimate this moment here and moment there of metta. If you would add it up, you know, it would um, 
sum up to quite a, an amount, a big chunk of time at the end of the day. So basically, all that is needed to really practice throughout the day is simply to remember. <laughs> to remember to direct the mind to the cultivation of loving-kindness or to dwell in uh, kindness. Of course, there can, be, there can still be the formal practice, you know, at home, on your cushion, on the chair, maybe in the morning, maybe in the evening or any suitable time throughout the day. But it doesn't, like the whole practice does not only consist of the formal practice, but to integrate it into our day-to-day -day life is most important and most beneficial. Because what we are training here, or training in a formal practice at home in the corner of our room, is just to strengthen um, this quality. But then we need to live by it. We need to apply it in our life. We need to manifest it day in, day out. And even though you may say, oh, my life is so busy, I have so many things to do, there is no excuse to really integrate this practice. Because, as I said, you know, very ordinary, simple activities you simply do every day, transform them into moments of practice. While you brush your teeth, for example. I think you do that every day. <laughs> So there, turn it into a meta-meditation practice. <clears throat> so, you know, as the Dalai Lama once said, practice kindness whenever it is possible. It is always possible. Or, as Acharya Buddharakita has said, he was the founder of the Mahabodhi Society in India. He said, Today, metta is a pragmatic necessity. Yes, there is nothing to add. So may we all continue with this noble and ennobling practice until all the barriers have been torn down, until we see our shared humanity, and until we see that all forms of life deserve our metta, our love and kindness. <clears throat>